0: Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit VineyardCleveland.org. Today's about presence, um, both individually and communally. Um, I sensed what's on God's heart for us today. Some are are hungry for Jesus this morning. Uh, whether it's a, a season in your in your life currently, or uh, whether it's been going on for a while, there's a hunger that's stirring within the hearts of the people who are gathered here at Vineyard Cleveland. Some are are famished for the presence of God. The presence of God, um, when folks go to talk about the presence of God, they, they tend to mention the benefits of experiencing God's presence, of which there are many. We read in the scriptures and Psalms that there's fullness of joy. Where? In the presence of God. But a lot of times when folks talk about the presence of God and experiencing God's presence, the benefits of his presence become the emphasis, but the necessity of God's presence for churches becomes less of an emphasis. And so that's kind of what I, what I wanted to poke at this morning for us as a community of followers of Jesus, to, to focus or emphasize less the, the benefits of coming to God, experiencing His presence and how He fills us with joy, and more on the necessity of presence for churches, not just our church, but all churches. And what that looks like when a church, when the people of God reverence, and honor God's presence above any other program, above any other um, activity that the church would put their hands to, that His presence would be first and foremost. As a friend of mine said the other night, Jesus' presence is not a destination we arrive at. Rather, His presence is the starting point for everything. When a church community... When a community of believers gathers around the presence of Jesus and doesn't just gather around the presence of Jesus, but exalts Jesus' presence as first and foremost above any other thing, that community of followers of Jesus has his smile, his blessing. That's his heart for the church. His heart for the church isn't that um, we would see so many people saved throughout the course of a year or feed so many hungry people through the course of a year. Those are all important things and things that he has charged the church to take care of. But if it's without his presence, you see, then what is it worth? If it's not done in the presence of Jesus, the name of Jesus, then of what value is that? Because anyone can feed the poor, you see. Anyone can raise money for a worthy cause. Anybody can uh, gather around a a band or a comedian or an entertainer and, and have a good show. Anybody can gather an audience, right? But presence is different. Presence is different than that. We're not simply gathered here this morning to hear a great talk or some, some great music and to, to be filled with emotion and, and, and then leave the doors of the church to have no effect on us. We're gathered here around something different. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that difference is in the presence of Jesus. Not just individually, but communally as well. The way we experience God together. And that doesn't devalue the individual experience of God. So we want to talk about that for just a second. The individual versus the corporate. There's this little phrase that Sarah and I have used for years here, carrying God's presence. It's a real kind of... um, slogan, if you will. Um, We carry around the presence of Jesus, and I'm often quoted as saying you don't get the luxury of turning Jesus' presence on and off like a light switch, depending on which room you walk into. You just, if you claim Jesus as Lord, you carry the presence of God with you wherever you go, right there, seated in your chest. The hope the world needs is seated within your chest. And a lot of times we don't feel like it. You guys know the drill, right? You've heard me say this a million times. There is something to individuals coming to Jesus, seeing the light of who Jesus is, the beauty, the wonder of who Jesus is, and surrendering their lives to him and saying, Lord, you can have everything in my life. You are God. You died on the cross to forgive my sins. I'm coming into relationship with you. And he indwells that person with the presence of the Holy Spirit, the very essence of who God is, of who Jesus is. Jesus is God. And he comes and fills, indwells in a very tangible and real way the presence of his spirit in our lives. He come and dwells in us. That's the goods. That's what you get when you say yes to Jesus. But what does that look like for both, individually and communally, to value both above everything else? The only agenda we're quoted on as saying here is his presence, because if we don't have his presence, we have nothing. We have nothing. And how can we become more true to that statement? I think that's what I'm nudging at this morning. How can we as a church become more true to that statement that we don't value anything over the presence of Jesus among us. How can we live that out with one another? There's this really great picture in in Matthew 27 as Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's dying for our sins, the sins of the world, past, present, and future. And he's there hanging on the cross and a couple of curious things start to happen. One thing that happens is that dead people start raising from the grave. They just start popping out all over Jerusalem. Hey, it's your aunt from 40 years ago, alive. Pretty curious, pretty strange. Another thing that happens is that there's earthquakes, and we're told that the rocks in Jerusalem split. There's an earthquake, there's darkness in the middle of the day. When there shouldn't be darkness, there's darkness. And people are like, what is going on? What is going on? And the one that I love to focus on, the one curious thing that happened as Jesus was dying on the cross, is that the veil in the temple was split in two. At the very moment that Jesus is giving his life as a sacrifice for you and for me, the temple veil is torn from the top to the bottom and clean too. And for any of you who have been around me for any length of time, as I tell this story, I like to tell it the way that Josephus did, who is an extra-biblical writer around the time of Jesus' life and his death. And Josephus says that these—paraphrase, uh, of course—these, this veil that we read about in Matthew, that the veil was torn from top to bottom. This veil was not like your shower curtain. It was really thick, like three feet thick, and it was really big. It was huge. Like, picture it something like from the top of the ceiling down to the floor. And Josephus said if there were like carriages of horses, like um, like the Calvary on either side of it, and they were hooking up the horses to the edges of the temple veil, that you could say, giddy up, and start going in opposite directions, and those carriages of horses still wouldn't be able to rip the temple veil in two. But God, why does God do this? When Jesus dies on the cross, tear the temple veil from top to bottom. Have you ever thought, Just pause for a second how wonderful it is that that curious thing happened on that day while Jesus is dying on the cross. And how wonderful that is. How such good news that is for you and for me. And such a curious thing to drive home such a fundamental point of who Jesus was and what he came to do. The reason that the Father with his sovereign view of history, chooses to do that to that temple veil in Jerusalem at that moment is so powerful. Because what the Father is saying as the temple veil is ripped, can you picture the Father's hands taking the curtain at the top and ripping it from the top to the bottom. The writer of Hebrews picks this up perfectly as we read in Lectio this morning. It's sincerely the body of Jesus being ripped and torn by sin so that he would become sin for us in our place. Why? Why does the Father do this? Don't you know it's the beauty of access into the most holy place where only one person, one time a year, was allowed to enter. And even when the priest entered that most holy of places, had a a rope tied around his ankle because if he was impure, he would be dead on the scene and dragged out because no one else wanted to go in there. And the Father says, with the ripping of the veil, you now have access to relationship with me. And that is amazing. That now it's not just the religious people. It's not just the important people who get in. It's everybody. The Father says, with one fell swoop, rip, you're all in. And what he's doing, like he's so great at doing, is he's taking, again, a step towards us. He's pursuing us. He's saying, no more will there be separation between you and I. No more. I want to see you face to face. You know, the blessing that the Jews have said over one another for a century, for millennia, may the the Lord's face shine upon you is really a desire of his own heart, you see. He's saying, what I want you to see is my smiling face, and that causes a smile in you. When the Jews pray that over one another, may his face smile upon you, shine upon you. It really discloses who God is like and what he wants and desires that we would see him. That we would experience him. And so here we are at presence. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. God is saying in the death of Jesus, we have forgiveness of sin. And because our sin is forgiven, we now have access into the presence of God. It's the greatest thing. For individuals, it's the the most lofty idea. That we could have access to God through no merit of our own. That God is always pursuing us. That he's always turning his face towards us. Offering invitation. Initiating closeness and withness. And this is who Christians are. Christians are folks. Here's who a Christian is. Christians are folks who have had the veil of their lives, their minds, their hearts torn in two by the presence of the resurrected Jesus. It's the highest thing, the best thing, the most lofty idea in history is that you and me, anyone, can have access to the presence of God in a deep and loving relationship to know Him. To, in the Hebrew, to Yadahim, Him, Y-A-D-A-H. It's the same Hebrew word, to know God, to have access with him, it's the same Hebrew word "yada" that's used in Genesis when it says that Adam knew his wife, and Cain and Abel were born. Then Cain and Abel were born. Adam yadad his wife. I mean, I'm not getting graphic here this morning, <laughs> but this is the Hebrew word, the same one that is used to know God, to have the deepest, intimate. Intim- most intimate places of our lives, filled with his presence. And so what I'm suggesting this morning is that that has an impact not only on individual lives, but it must have an impact and be the highest priority, the only priority, if you will, We mu- the starting point, you see, like my friend said, the starting point, not the destination, for entire church communities and the Big C Church worldwide, globally. Because without His presence, we're not His church. We're just not. We may be a country club, we may be a concert on Sunday morning, but we're not His church. So let's read Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 again. With this knowledge of the veil, therefore, Brethren in the King James, brothers and sisters. So he's speaking, the writer of Hebrews to people, not an individual. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, think together. We're moving into the holy place. By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, family members, brothers and sisters, plural, let us draw near, us, us, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us, us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. There's insight here that this thing of presence is not simply for individuals, but for groups as well. Groups of people. We can't, uh, we can't go it alone. If we claim Jesus as Lord individually, that means that we don't do life alone, that we get to go together, that we get to go together. And the truth of it is, is that if we cannot go together, I don't want to go. This should be your mindset if you're scoping out a church or if you're thinking about joining a church or looking at a fellowship of believers. Uh, do they go together? Do they go to the presence of God together? Or is it just a bunch of individuals trying to work out what presence means for themselves? I know for me, and I can only speak for myself that if we cannot go together, I don't want to go. And I think this bit of individual versus corporate, that one fuels the other. And I'm still trying to work this through, but God says say it, so I'm going to say it. The Israelites were called to be God's people with Him only, And we read that they were to be led and guided by God's presence alone. They were called to be a people. And and so God kind of like seeing many, 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 many people, millions of people as like one person kind of like seeing that. Not all that each individual person is the same because we're all built different. We're all unique individuals loved by God but God kind of seeing them as a people, as one people being guided by his presence. He's the great high priest. He's the shepherd of the sheep, plural. He's not the shepherd of the sheep, singular, you get, of one sheep. The shepherd of the sheep, plural. Check out in Numbers 9.17, we read that whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out the cloud settled and the israelites encamped this is really deep for the church today how many things do we camp around what what let's turn it positive what are the things that our church is camped around what are the things that sends our church out. We read here for the Israelites, for the nation of Israel, that the thing the Israelites set out for and the thing that the Israelites camped around was only the presence of God. The cloud of glory that followed the Israelites around, that settled over the tabernacle, was their main center For being. Now, you and I as individuals camp our lives around many, many different things. We may camp our lives around a football team. We may camp our lives around money. We may camp our lives around all of these different things. And some of those things aren't bad things. They're good things, you see. But I think what I'm here to say this morning is that for our group, for our church... We are to be as the Israelites were called to be. Camped, a church, camped, a community of people camped around the presence of Jesus. Just to get near that fire. Just to get around that campfire. This image of a campfire and, and tending the campfire and 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 gathering on a cold night around the campfire. Everything you see centers in the presence of God, not just for us as individuals, but for the church at large. In Exodus thirty-three, fifteen 15, and 16, we're given the motif for presence throughout the whole of the Old Testament and carrying on through the person of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. But this is it. This is the, this is the template. This is the blueprint. Here it is. Moses said to to God, to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? Here it is, really key. What else will distinguish? Just pause. What else will distinguish me and your people from all of the other people on the face of the earth? Let that one settle for a minute. What will distinguish a community of people from all of the other groups of people or cultures or subcultures in society? Moses is giving it up to us right here. It's the presence of God in the person of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee, one of my favorites, he writes this. He says, for Paul, and he's talking about the New Testament, for Paul and the Spirit, as an experienced and living reality was the absolute crucial matter for the Christian life from beginning to end. You see, Gordon Fee and this morning, me, here, we're all talking around the same thing. What he's saying is the same thing that I've been saying for the last 15-20 minutes. God's presence is central, and if we don't have it, we have nothing. This This is about the presence of God's Spirit, not some theoretical understanding of God both for us individually, but also corporately. Um, there's this thing. It was wonderful in worship this morning to experience God's presence. Together. We did that together. We went there together. There was, you know, the fourth wall, as they, as they say, kind of came down a little bit, and we were together, and the band wasn't separate from the people. That was wonderful to experience Together. There's this one analogy that I, I think can be helpful for some of the thinkers in the room. Because what I'm about to say sometimes gets misunderstood. And so I want to make sure that I'm very clear. If, and, and I like to put it in the context of marriage. In, in Sarah and I's relationship, I can wake up each morning... And say, you know Sarah, in July 20 years ago, I went to that altar and I said I love you. And I said forever. I, I, in my mind, I think I love you. I think with my thinker that our love is great. Have a great day. (laughs) Or, I could show her that I love her and say, Sarah, I love you more today than I did 20 years ago and pull her tight and give her a a hug and a kiss while she's squirming to get away from me (laughs) and show her that I love her. And a lot of folks within the church approach God that way, and they think that if I can just get my theology straight, that my heart will follow. Like if I can just think right thoughts about God, if I can just like get my, my conscience washed, whatever Hebrews is saying, and get right in my thoughts with God, then my emotions will follow what I'm here to suggest to you this morning is that it's actually the opposite that's true. That your mind will follow your body. Your thoughts will align as you worship Jesus. Your your mind only goes where your body has been before. Your thoughts about God will align as you give yourself in worship. As we become more true to what we sang this morning, we will dance. We will dance for your glory. There's something about dancing, making fools of ourselves and not caring like nobody's watching. What is that song? Dance like nobody's watching. That's what Jesus is calling when he says to Yadat to know him corporately. And here we are right back again. Like, if... You know, you can think all the right thoughts about God, but if your heart is far from him, what is it worth? You just thought some good thoughts about God. Congratulations, church. Your doctrine is so solid. But if your heart is far from him, you know, I think that's the question I'm asking them. What's that worth? Yeah, everything... um, And I'm not suggesting to have wrong doctrine. That's not not what I'm saying. To sway from the fundamental truth of who Jesus is, what he came to do, how his kingdom operates in our lives, and so forth and so on. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. I guess what I'm asking is like, what difference does all that stuff make in our lives? If your presence does not go with us, don't send us. In Psalms 127, David drives home the point and he says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. David's saying the same thing that Gordon Fee said, the same thing that I've been saying. It's all vanity if God doesn't build his house. And he wants to build his house. He wants to make this a house of prayer and a house of worship where lives are transformed. Where sins are forgiven. Where grace is distributed. Where his presence rests and dwells among us, not just amidst individual lives and our role is to co-labor with the building that God is constructing in addition to this God is building church using people individually and corporately we are as the New Testament writer says living stones being stacked one upon another what good is one brick by itself it needs other bricks to be formed into a dwelling place You know, my history in the vineyard is this, that um, I met this wonderful lady named Sarah at a restaurant. God was changing my life. He was drawing me to himself. I went to Sarah. I was writing songs at the time. I was playing in dive bars and open mics. I was just off drug addiction, broken, torn up by the presence of Jesus, just come to Vineyard, heard the gospel, heard the good news, came to Jesus, and then Sarah walks into my life. I gave her a crayon to fill out her job application at the restaurant that she applied for, and I and I was like, "Hey, I want to do music. Could you get me a gig at your church?" <laughs> and she's like, "I don't, I." I'm not the one who does that, but I could, like, introduce you to somebody who could or whatever. So uh, I was so fresh, right? I was just like, I love Jesus. I can put two thoughts together in my head again. Like, my head isn't all cloudy. Like, God lifted that fog from my head. He set me free. Um, this is all new and exciting. I want to gig at your church. And so um, it it had, it had been that... Um, this guy, Michael, set me up uh, to play some songs at Goodale Park for this young adult service called Joshua House in Columbus that no longer exists. Um, and I was to play songs before the service. And so I brought my guitar, and, and everybody was enjoying it. It was a nice summer evening, and everybody was enjoying their picnic dinners, and they were all sitting down and talking with one another. And, and, and in my insecurity, I'm like, why isn't anybody paying attention to me? These songs are revolutionary. Don't you know, like... I'm going to go platinum here in, like, a month. Like, these are revolutionary lyrics. Like, you need to be, li- like, why is that peanut butter jelly sandwich more important than the song that I'm singing right now? And everybody's just enjoying themselves. And, and I get done, you know, strumming the last chord, and I'm done. And so, you know, a couple people, it was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> eh, okay. And then um, Sarah clapped. <laughs> she still does <laughs> it's, like, it's amazing uh, and, then, and then the worship team came and everybody stood up and the first chord rings out and everybody starts lifting their hands there's people dancing around and I'm, I'm standing smugly in the back and I'm thinking What does this guy have that I don't have? These songs aren't that good. You see, I didn't understand that they had not come to worship that guy and his songs, but they came to give glory to Jesus. That it was about Jesus' presence. That's the thing about the Vineyard Movement. The Vineyard Movement was camped in the beginning. Those first kindling sticks were thrown on the fire were those of worship. And an encampment around the presence of Jesus only. That's how the Vineyard Movement grew. And may I suggest, that's where we need to return today. To the presence, communally. I didn't understand, I didn't get yet, that it was about Jesus' presence and Him alone. And I'm still learning That it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about a people of God having their lives transformed and reoriented to leave the lesser lights and the things that we camp our lives around and being drawn to the warmth and fire of God's presence as a community and staying put right there until he stamps it out and says, Come, let's set out and set the campfire. Yes, Jesus, we'll go. Yes, Lord, we will say yes to you as far as we can see. And there, we will camp our lives around the presence of God's fire in the Holy Spirit. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. And that's the crazy thing about the vineyard. That's the crazy thing about the vineyard movement is that you and I, that we have this audacious idea, this crazy idea, that we actually expect God to show up in our midst. Like, we, we're like, when's God going to show up? <laughs> my, uh, my counselor, Dr. Litchie, who's spoken here before, um, has counseled thousands of people and thousands of pastors as well over the years. And he visited our church. And the, you know what the first thing he told me was when we went out to lunch that day? Here's the first thing that he told me. He goes, it was so refreshing to be in a church that actually expects for God's presence to show up. It's the first thing. He go, And th- these are his words, not mine. He said, do you know how rare it is to have a community of Believers who actually take this thing seriously and encamp their lives together around the presence of God. The experience of God. That we together would actually experience God's presence. He said, I've counseled thousands upon thousands of people and thousands of pastors. And I'm telling you, what I experienced among you all was a rare thing. After 50 years of of counseling experience... So I guess my encouragement to us is to keep going, to keep going and to, um, to see the day where it wouldn't be a rare thing, that churches all over would gather their hearts around only the presence of God. Theologian Miroslav Volf writes this, Christian communities will be able to survive and thrive in contemporary societies only if they attend to their difference from surrounding cultures and subcultures. The following principle stands, whoever wants the Christian communities to exist must want their difference from the surrounding culture, not their blending into it. As a consequence, Christian communities must manage their identity by actively engaging in boundary maintenance. Without boundaries, communities dissolve. We are not after uh, cultural relevance at our church. We We feel like it's too low of a goal. Revival is too low of a goal. The presence of God... The kingdom of God in our midst is what we're after. What else will distinguish? I was once told to stop um, talking about how our church is so different from all of the rest. I can't be told. I can't keep it inside. Our church is different. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. What will distinguish Vineyard Cleveland people from all the rest of the culture that's out there, that's dead and dying? I want to suggest it's the presence of God. James says, come near to God and he will come near to you. The questions that a presence-driven church asks are different. We're asking questions like, where is God leading us? What is God telling us to do? What does God think of this? What does this look like from God's perspective? Is God building the house or are we? Are we hearing God correctly? God, what are you saying to us? What is God now doing within us? These are all questions that you should be asking. We should be asking together. One of my favorite authors, Ruth Haley Barton, writes this. She says, It's hard to imagine that spiritual leadership could be about anything but seeking to know and do the will of God. And yet, many leadership groups do not have this as their clear mandate and reason for existence. This raises a serious question. If we are not pursuing the will, the presence of God together in fairly intentional ways, what are we doing? Our own will, what seems best according to our own thinking and planning, that which is merely strategic or expedient or good for the ego. What are we doing? When the fire is lit, it doesn't have to be advertised or programmed. It does, however, need to be tended. And this season, Jesus is asking us to tend the fire. Tend the fire. To gather as people of Jesus' presence around the fire of the Holy Spirit, a people who are growing in our understanding of the Scriptures, of His Word, around the fire of the Holy Spirit and growing in knowing Jesus deeply, and a people who are actively engaging in prayer and worship consistently together. More opportunity to gather around the campfire of prayer and worship.